This is podcast 95, and it's entitled Strack Billerbeck. And uh, before I talk about it, I want to say that this is the last of my podcasts for a few weeks because I'd like to give everyone a chance to sort of catch up when you have a chance, assuming that you're getting something out of these. Uh, catch up now for a few weeks while we take a break, just so you can uh, do that. I've, I've sort of uh, I dropped a three-pack. I, I dropped a four-pack. I certainly dropped two packs on you and uh, because so many ideas uh, come into my mind to talk about. And I'm deliberately backing up now for about three weeks and giving uh, people a chance to stop and maybe go back or question and think about what what I've been trying to say and uh, and then I'll uh, I'll uh, return in about a month uh, or a little bit less than a month to move on to podcast 96 and secondly if you'll write me I will listen to what you say and respond to you as directly and immediately as I can in most cases not always but only because sometimes I'm not in access to that account, but um, write me at pzspodcast at gmail.com. That's pzspodcast at gmail.com. And I will write you as soon as I possibly can back with your questions or your thoughts. Now, this is uh, called Strach Billerbeck because it's <clears throat> actually an occasion to talk about uh, why I don't talk about things like Strach Billerbeck any longer, although they're very worthy and very important. What uh, has happened is I have received some very interesting feedback, and one of the most uh, important uh, uh, letters that I've received has been, Paul, I miss your old voice. I miss what I used to hear in sermons or talks. I miss the great old message, the old, old story of the gospel, and I'm not getting enough of that which is directly germane to my life as a Christian. I want more of the old, old story, God's word to his uh, human beings, and uh, I've, uh, I miss that voice in you. And uh, I'm just not quite as interested in some unknown author whose book I can't even find at a used bookstore or Attack of the Crab Monsters, some ridiculous uh, and genuinely ridiculous, I, I'm glad to say ridiculous movie, or some obscure piece of product somewhere that seems to catch your fancy. I want it more directly. It's a little bit thin soup, and that's a very worthwhile contribution. <clears throat> and what I want to say uh, in relationship to that question, and it's come in two different forms, that thought, uh, and it's something I think about, is that what I really would like to say is that it's not that the message has changed or that one's grasp and delight in the message has changed, but I have changed. Uh, I have changed. And the reason I changed is that so much of the life that was motivated by that passionate desire to express that message uh, was uh, finally um, reached a kind of crescendo of nothingness and was all caught up into other subsidiary and in some ways deleterious phenomena in the world of the church or the world of politics or the world of this or that issue that divides people. And it's not that one is trying to horn in or go uh, detach oneself from the possibility of controversy, but it is really the, the fact that controversy never succeeds. That's the controversy because it is almost always a symbolic form of anger that is just projected onto a cause. We, being human, almost inevitably find that when we get involved in polemic or controversy of any kind, even if it is for ostensibly and heartfeltly sincere motives, it touches a nerve that is deeper than any of us and further Planted. Someone the other day was talking about a certain kind of grass 
that's very hard to dig up. If you want to, where, where I live, you have to constantly dig up crabgrass, and a certain kind of grass is hard to dig up, so you can then replace it with another more appropriate kind of grass for the climate. And the soil, <clears throat> and this particular kind of grass has deep roots. Someone said their roots, they go down to China. <clears throat> In other words, the roots are very, very, very deep. You can't, you can't dig up the grass. The roots are too deep. Well, anger is such a deep root in the human equation. This goes for me and it goes for anyone on all sides of all issues that um, whenever you get involved in an issue that becomes a symbolic substitute for one's own inner drives or own inner purposive tendencies, you have a tendency to project. And when you project, you are not really talking about the thing. You're talking about things inside you. And no wonder that almost all causes come to naught, whether you are a Dreyfusard or whether you're an anti-Dreyfusard, whether you are uh, a blanketeer in England and whenever that was in the 19th century, or an anti-blanketeer, whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic, whether you're pro the new perspective on Paul or anti the new perspective on Paul, whether you're this or that. Um, I'm very much wanting to go down to that, which I really now believe is the universal message. And I do acknowledge that it's a message of profound uh, depth within Christianity at its best, although often not to be found in expressions of Christianity. But I'm so aware that any kind of position taking on almost any theme, and especially if it gets too involved in some kind of theological lingo will have a tendency to attract to itself um, controversy in the negative sense of that word. That is to say, division in the negative sense, not the truth cannot, you know, iron sharpens iron, people always saying. I'm not sure if I believe a word of that, but nevertheless, what it is true, that uh, there is truth, and yet there is also this incredible personalistic side of uh, malice and aggro that exists inside people that... uh, inevitably covers over and burrows deep within. Remember those, uh, that Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan, when there was a little worm that they, they, would, they, would, uh, they would torture the alien sort of cavemen on this planet, tortured the uh, inhabitants of the Enterprise, the, the crew, by having these little earwigs, as they say, g- going inside their ears and burrowing in their brains. I mean, what a terrible picture and what a horrifying possibility. Well, um, that's what anger does. It takes a very good thing like your head and then it goes in and burrows in and lives within it and acts for it invasion of the body snatchers so that's why i'm far more reluctant now let's take an example of this um strach billerbeck um someone very rightfully heard me say uh in a <clears throat> cd from the group of uh talks given at all saints episcopal church in chevy chase entitled the merciful impasse when i talked about the sermon on the mount they heard me talk about paul billerbeck whose essay on the sermon on the mount has never been bettered it's an amazing essay and uh they said uh, why don't you talk a little bit more about jewish christian relations in light of this extraordinary person paul billerbeck now i won't give a talk about paul billerbeck now, but he is in fact a an, a very interesting uh, character, a priest. He was a Lutheran pastor in Berlin uh, before the uh, before the Nazi period, well before it. And he um, he was of Jewish extraction, and he wrote uh, a uh, actually it's Kommentar zum Neuen Testament aus Talmud und Midrash. That is to say, a commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and the Midrash, and it was an attempt to understand with an encyclopedic, wissenschaftliche, scholarly mind that Paul Billerbeck had, the Lutheran pastor of Jewish origin, to try to find, to try to answer the question definitively from the sources, was Jesus' teaching 
especially in the Gospels, needless to say, uh, unique and original and autonomous, or did it really depend on Jewish uh, culture, the sources religiously around him from which he was birthed, which is Judaism of the first century. And so Paul Billerbeck, amazingly, just using three-by-five cards and a brilliant linguistic analytical mind, he plumbed uh, pretty completely the depths of the Jewish literature, which has been passed on from that period, you know, Hillel and Gamaliel and many rabbinic uh, commentaries on the uh, Torah, etc., etc., the Law and the Prophets. And he came to the conclusion that Jesus' teachings were fundamentally um, independent. And in fact, although dependent in form, not dependent in material or substantial content. And this is controversial because it basically says that Christianity really burst the context of first century Judaism because of Jesus himself. Now, that may sound, quote, obvious, but in today's world of New Testament scholarship, that's that is that's no wabbit it's not obvious it's not at all obvious and it's hotly contested so if you start talking about paul billerbeck a his judaism b his lutheranism c his understanding of the jewish sources of the first century what we call the first century common era and uh, then the role of jesus within that and his what we might call highly christian quote end of quote conclusions that he derives from his study you have a something that is going to get everybody uh, Involved, and there's going to be a lot of heat. By the way, the name of the um, the name of the uh, heart of his teaching, it all occurs in a little uh, we would call it excursus or sort of appendix. In believe it or not, it's right here. It's never been translated into English, and it's uh, terrible that fact. But it's volume six, no volume. Part four, volume one. A number of the, the books are in two large volumes. Zur Berg Predigt Jesu, that is to say, uh, concerning the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. And uh, all I'm trying to say, it's immensely interesting and absolutely fascinating. But as soon as I started talking about it, this would, uh, there are all sorts of uh, cultural, theological, and partisan divides within the scholarship and in other areas that immediately come into play. And my own life is a complete rebuke uh, experientially to that experience, and I just cannot do it anymore. Not because I'm afraid, because I don't believe it anymore. I don't believe that uh, dealing with these issues with their symbolic projections that come upon them from the moment you come is really useful. It certainly isn't useful to me anymore, and I've just had it with any kind of projected partisan controversy of any kind. And you may say, well, he's a coward. I don't believe it really accomplishes anything, and it certainly doesn't get to the truth, because who's ever accused, who's ever changed anybody's mind? A friend of mine, a wonderful clergyman, was describing, he's he's, uh, very well known on the Christian blogs, this particular clergyman, and he's a nice guy, a wonderful guy, and he was uh, he constantly gets into fights in internet threads because his particular view of grace is rejected by a whole bunch of other bloggers who know his stuff, and they're constantly taking him on, and then he takes them on, and then you'll have a 40 comment, bang, 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 a one-two punch with this, whoever it may happen to be, these various bete noirs of other clergymen or of seminary people who are attacking his position. And I just wanted to say to him, you know, I completely agree with you, about what you're saying, but do you think you really are changing? You think you're, you, what are you accomplishing? I mean, what, what is actually happening as a result of this constant back and forth cannon roll here? Is anything happening? <clears throat> and he wasn't, you know, I, I, he, that wouldn't convert him either. But the point is, I, I now see that as a, as a, um, as a kind of, uh, ludicrous kermesse, a kind of carnival of, of, uh, of, uh, 
what is that Walt Disney cartoon? It's one of the earliest Walt Disney cartoons in which the island of classical music and the island of jazz fight with cannonballs and their fleets. They have a, a battle between classical music and uh, big band music. Uh, it's hysterical. It's really well done. And I think ultimately they end up getting married through, I want to say through Gershwin or something, but that's not what happens. But the, everything happens. I think they end up get, coming together and that you have both the pop and the classical. And it's Walt Disney at his best. It's an early, um, early uh, melody maker, you know, uh, one of his very early cartoons. Now, this is why I no longer believe in this kind of discussion. And I know that with uh, the subject of the Schrock Billerbeck, because you see, Billerbeck had to get a Gentile Christian colleague to cover his work in order to get it published in the particular setting in which these men lived at that time. It was pre the Nazis. But um, let's see, what's the date? Uh, Buchhandlung in. uh, my edition is 1928. You can imagine we were getting near that very critical period in German history. And so um, the controversial fact that wonderful Paul Billerbeck had to actually get a Gentile professor who I think was at the University of Greifswald to sort of cover for him. I mean, it's a shocking fact, but that's the way it was. So you see, I mean, you get into it and you've got a million different possible ways of looking at this material. And uh, so that's why I'm not going to do this. Uh, much, as, much, as, much as Paul Billerbeck is important and really valuable... Uh, I'm 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 afraid that my own um, purposes will not be served by getting into that kind of controversy. Now, then people will write. Uh, so I, 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 that's why um, it's a different Paul, a Paul who is uh, sort of, in a sense, for me, just for me. I no longer believe in causes uh, vis-a-vis other causes, or causes, or abstract. Um, partisan banners in relationship to other uh, abstracted uh, ideas because um, of the uh, tendency for these to attract like magnets, super magnets. They attract uh, the resentment and rage of the libido, which is such a factor in human lives. I don't think that, I think that's about perhaps the, 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 the number one male issue is uh, uh, resentment, anger, and bitterness. Uh, Females have it in all sorts of ways, Um, bitterness and resentment, but the anger that results in tremendous rage, I just see it. So um, instead, I've uh, turned the thing around, and I'm only going to talk for a brief time. I'm attempting to make these shorter. I really was so very touched by what Claude Berry said before he died. Claude Berry, B-E-R-R-I, was a French filmmaker and kind of a bit of a figure in France before he died, who was not part of the New Wave and did some very uh, wonderful movies. But uh, he was very surprised after 1986 when his two-part movie called Jean de Floretti and Manon of the Spring, which I've referred to in the past on the podcast, Jean de Floretti and Manon of the Spring, which when you get the DVD, it's, it's two movies. It's a total of four hours. The two, it's part one and part two, and you have to see them both. So set aside three days. It's a three-hour and 54-minute experience, but you have to see these movies. Um, they will not change your life. They will, um, you will understand the deepest questions you've ever had about relationship difficulties, long-standing relationship difficulties, if you have any. Uh, these movies will simply give you an understanding that a year of therapy can barely give you. 
Um, they are worth their weight. They're worth hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars, these movies, just, just to get the copy. A copy of Men of the Spring is worth to you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But in any event, <clears throat> Barry was very surprised by the response, which was huge, first in France and then around the world, because they're movies that are very culture-specific. They take place in a little town before World War I in Provence in the south of France. Highly specific cultural um, surroundings. <clears throat> Who in the world would have um, would have uh, you know? It's like uh, taking place in a tiny little southern town, like uh, Cobb's uh, stories, which take place in Paducah, Kentucky, or you know, um, Brockton. Um, uh, Massachusetts in um, or Brockton, Pennsylvania, in uh, the Cousins books. Uh, these are little places with highly, they're like Japan in the 17th century. I mean that, that they have all these very local constraints and everything sort of wired. And to to navigate in this little town in France, you have to really know how it's wired and who's who and what's what and where's where and when's when. And if you don't know, you're lost. And uh, when this fantastic response to this movie came. He, he tried to understand it, but he did understand it. And this is what he said. He said, when you dig down deep enough, you'll always find the mythic slash the universal. And you'll find that human nature, whether we like it or not, does not change. First, you'll find the mythic or universal and then you'll discover that human nature is unchangeable. It does, it's unchanging. Let's, oh, let's put that. Human nature is unchanging. So when you dig a little town in Provence in 1912 or 10, or maybe it's later, maybe it's 1924, it may be later for all I know. It's more, you know, it's probably the 30s actually, but the late 20s. But a little town with all its specific wirings, there's something deeper. Now this has to do with, remember, identity politics. We're also obsessed with the context of my being of this kind of American or that kind of American or having this ethnicity or that gender or this particular thing or that particular thing. But if you dig down deep enough, you find that everyone has in common the mythic universal, which is always the hunger for love, either the experience of love repulsed and therefore the need for forgiveness and forgiving and reconciliation, or love fulfilled, which makes the departure of death so terribly wounding, both for those left behind who love and those who has loved and been loved, who is departing this life in thy faith and fear. So you have uh, love, which is the, uh, the mythic and universal, uh, which is uh, whether you're in 1927, uh, a village uh, called Aubagne in the south of France, or whether you're in Kentucky, or whether you're in Brockton, or whether you're in wherever you're in. Now, that is really important. And to be honest, that's really what I'm looking for. I'm really not interested in even the specific theological dressings. I don't... Uh, um, have a problem with that and uh, I spent 50 years working on that and uh, uh, I accept that um, that's me, that's who I am and it may be who you are it may not be who you are I almost hope it's not who you are although if you're listening to this it probably is who you are and you're like me and yet um, I would actually at this point prescribe a sufferer a good, week-long, gentle, quiet viewing of Jean de Floretti and Manor of the Spring, and maybe a discussion of it afterwards, than a month of Sundays, or 
any number of other readings of this, that, or the other theological or philosophical thinker. I see more in that. By the way, make a note, nota bene, that uh, Barry's first full-length feature was called The Two of Us. It's on the Criterion Collection, and it stretches the same theme, but it's out of his own experience. It's about a little Jewish boy during the uh, World War II occupation of Paris by the Nazis who is sent by his very anxious parents to live with uh, a French family way out in the country. And this French family, it turns out that the old man, an old grandfather, is... uh, Angry? No, no, not angry. He is, uh, he's uh, uh, like so many French of his generation, doesn't excuse it, but it's like many French, anti-Semitic, anti-black, anti-everything, anti-liberal, anti-communist, anti-this and anti-that, and uh, very much a Vichy popular Frenchman, and they existed. They existed probably, I mean, many, many, many people were like this, and yet come to find out, he's a honey, he's a deer. He's a lovely, lovely, integrated, emotional man whose heart is of gold, even though he has a lot of uh, attitudes that are prejudicial. And the story, because Barry himself was Jewish and had had this experience as a boy during World War II, he had lived this life. He is able, with great compassion, to show the good in the man and the fear in the boy and the way that everything is brought together under the rubric of love and uh, peace and comfort and and mercy and uh while he doesn't do any injustice to the historical facts of the anti-semitism and the uh, occupation of france by the nazis on the one hand he brings out of it a fully credible and unflinching compassionate merciful view of the human condition which as he said you scratch down deep enough and that old man and that little boy are one that at least is what barry is clearly making us feel as we watch this beautiful, quiet, um, remarkable little histoire. So see the two of us by Claude Berry, but most of all see Manon of the Spring and Jean de Floretti. Now I end by that statement. So on one hand, when someone says we want the old Paul, I have to say, well, read the old Paul or listen to the old Paul's talks, and it's still me, but I'm a different. I, I, I the, the one who's speaking is different because of, uh, because really, um, God gave me to see the uh, the relative conditionality of a tremendous nature of the of a tremendous number of the. Uh, issues and causes which I attach such tremendous passion to, and perhaps gave me the window of looking, um, I would want to say, a little um, thanks to be to God more deeply or more deeply for me personally, psychodynamically, at the roots of the bad and also the roots of the good. What is really mercy about? What are we looking for when we talk about mercy? Where can we find it in a way that is not cause-related and anger-provocative, but is an ultimately that which all people want, which is forgiveness and kindness and uh, and uh, the sweetness of a Joe Warren, whatever you want to call it, we are looking for that which is universally needed and needy in us. And that is why at this point I'm more involved uh, in looking at the way that Claude Berry and Maurice Pagnol distilled Aeschylus and Jesus Christ, the New Testament, from his remarkable contextualized story of a few little landowners and would-be farmers in uh, 
Aubagne or near Aubagne, to be honest, uh, to be specific, in a funny French movie than I am, not to mention Island of Lost Souls and House of Dracula, where you see a kind of understanding of the real reality of things, which is in a way uh, more profound and also, thank God, more funny and more delightful and more hilarious than anything you could possibly uh, uh, conjure up uh, in a uh, systematic and intellectual format. I know that sounds non. Uh, um, uh, does it sound non-intellectual? No, it sounds to me at least uh, a, 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 a little more effective, and ultimately uh, a little more um, true. So uh, thank you so much for listening, and I'll get back to you in about three weeks. But in the meantime, write me. Why don't you write me? Isn't that, isn't that a Simon and Garfunkel song? Why don't you write me? And uh, PC's podcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to you. And go back and listen and think if, uh, if anything else is to be gained from these odd and absurd uh, uh, podcasts. Uh, and I send you my love. God bless. <laughs>